Warning. The following contains bright, flashing lights, and slash or imager that may cause discomfort, and slash or seizures for those with photosensitive epilepsy. Viewer discretion is advised. Awesome. We are back. This is season two now. We're trying, we're uh, slowly recovering from the post-December thing. We had a break, and all of us are like, uh, you know, jet lagged on my end. Um, how are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I am uh, alive, figuring things out. 2003 has started off with a bang, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, Globally, we, we I think we're in for a few other uh, once-in-a-lifetime uh, things this year, probably. Um, but it's it's interesting seeing how things are, you know, going back to. I don't say I, I wouldn't say going back to normal. They're the settling, new normal. They're settling into the new normal, mm. right? Uh, but before we go into all of that, um, tell us a little about about yourself. Like where where uh, where do you hail from? Uh, I'm from St. Louis, so I'm from the center of the country, a very Midwestern place. Um, St. Louis is the murder capital of the United States per capita, small city, tons of violence. Um, I grew up a little bit west of the city, which is a better option for survival. Yeah. Um, went into the Marines, so not too far away. What, uh, what motivated you into going into the, into the Marines? I liked traveling. I liked shooting. Es- escape. You know, probably <laughs> escape, was it a, was but more escape seeking pack? adventure. I think less escape, more just seeking out something that was bigger and better and cool and, cooler and different than, than what I had. And why specifically the Marines? Because they did all the cool shit that I really liked and respected. Literally, they had the best fitness standards in the world. They had the best shooting standards in the world. At the time, they were the best snipers. Uh, all the cool stuff at the time was from those guys. And you didn't hear a whole lot about them, unlike what you hear about now with special forces and SEALs and all that other stuff. So, so that's very attractive. Yeah. What, uh, what did you settle in when you work? Like what what activities were you doing? Uh, Well, that's the interesting part is that I ended up having a, uh, less structured experience in the Marine Corps. So my primary job is, was a rifleman. And then when you get to a certain level, so you have, private and private first class and Lance Corporal and Corporal and Sergeant. When you get above that, a staff sergeant, you go to um, an MOS that's just a generic MOS. So it's like a small unit leader is what they call it. But I spent very little time doing that. I spent a lot of time in what they call B billets or secondary jobs. And uh, it would be like going out and doing recruiting or going out and working at an Intel center or going out and working at a motion picture. So I had all these weird, very strange jobs I spent more time with civilians and, and, and weird functions than I did with the actual infantry side of things. Yeah. And uh, the, well, basically uh, learning different trade craft, trade craft skills, skill sets and uh, life, life lessons, basically, in the military, but uh, on the fringes of it, basically. On the, yeah, on yeah, the weird. absolutely. Uh, much broader exposure. Otherwise, I would have just stayed in the field with a rifle, humping a pack, going from point A to point B, doing a thing and going back. And it was did, very little of that. Did you have a like a? Did you have a path already set, selected for yourself, or are you were just winging it, uh, going no, into the military it was, and figuring it out? The, the the weird thing is that 
the military has everything, literally. So any type of job you could want to do exists in the military. And then within that are all kinds of little odd jobs, little liaison jobs that, just for an example, um, I ended up finding out about this job in L.A. where I could go out there, work out of an office, edit scripts for Hollywood, and then go on set and teach actors how to walk and talk like Marines or how to do, however we, let's say, uh, clear a stairwell. Right, so they call it ladder well. So this is how you clear the ladder well. This is what our TTPs are. This is how you would actually do it. And then the director or producer says, "Oh, that looks sexy. I like it. We'll use it." Or you know what? That's not that's not sexy. We're not going to do that. Um, but I would get paid as a young guy to go out on the set of, for example, The Born Identity. Oh, oh I'm going to fly you to Prague. We're going to put you here in this nice hotel, and then you're going to go over there and tell Matt Damon all this stuff, and you're going to get these guys from the actual embassy, real Marine security guards, bring them in and tell them how you want them to do it in conjunction with the director. So very weird, very odd job. Nobody even know it exists. Yeah. So when you find yourself there, you know, this weird, weird job where you're showing these people how to move around with rifles in this building and Matt Damon's there. That's a weird, that's a weird, that's a weird moment. Well, it is. It's, it's odd because one, the people that you're there supporting don't necessarily support you. Yeah. And I didn't understand the politics of it. I was, so, I was young. Yeah. So you're not really involved in that aspect of it. And so it was, it was odd there. And then the external support, but then internally um, them, you know, counterproductively working against you. Um, it, it was weird. So it's, it's um, very valuable f- from an experience standpoint you know to to get that exposure yeah the, the travel aspect of it which later on in your life was uh you know interesting as far as being exposed to that um what 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 uh what else did you do there in in, in the india and the marines uh i worked out of another weird office uh that was a liaison to quantico with uh, fbi and dea that essentially took background information on people, so if you served in the military in the U.S., your records would go to this location, and then they would, if you had classified records, for example, go into this room in this skiff, and basically you would take the information out to get a profile on a person. So I say, okay, well, you know, Ed went to this training, he went to SEER training, and then he went to this training and that training, and all this stuff, and then they would take it, put it together, do a profile, send it out to uh, Quantico if it was FBI or DEA, or if it's the military, like even Marine Corps on Quantico as well. So they'd send that out. So that was another crazy experience because you're dealing with guys who you really respected and then you're going back in their records and looking at stuff and posting like, ooh, that, that was not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's weird, weird access. Yeah. Access. And, and it wasn't earned. It was, it was just, it was <laughs> through learning what was there. And I was, at the time, fighting an MMA, which was called No Holds Barred NHB. And what year is this? Uh, this is mid '90s. You're talking about oh, like '96 time frame. Wow, this is this is, yeah, this is this is the the, the 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 kind of the inceptions of it, right? Yeah. So this so the job allowed me to stay where my team was because the the facility was there, and it was kind of a unlike most marine jobs, especially in infantry, it was kind of a, a nine to five or in this case seventy four. Um, so I could do both. So I had a, a little balancing act, which doesn't happen much in the military. And so you were, so you started, you started when you were in the military. That's when you started. You're mm-hmm. seriously focusing on MMA and, yep. and fighting. What did you, like? What did you see that pu- pull you in as far as, far as uh, fighting? 
Well, I was doing karate and Japanese jiu-jitsu. And uh, for people that don't know the differences, that just hear jujitsu and Japanese <laughs> and and Brazilian jujitsu, yeah, like they're that. they're they're all um, connected but very different at the same. What's time. the difference? The main difference between Japanese jujitsu and Brazilian jujitsu? So Japanese jujitsu focuses a lot on um, wrist locks, joint locks, manipulation stuff like that, and it's predominantly standing. Right. There's a ground component, but it's limited. Whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the opposite. You know, the focus is on the ground. So there are standing techniques, which are takedowns and throws and things like that. But 90 plus percent is groundwork. Right. And so it's, it's kind of the inverse of, of traditional Japanese. So, you, so you have this uh, Japanese Jiu-Jitsu karate background. And what do you see that uh, makes you... Well, that's another kind of weird term because uh, I was teaching karate and Japanese jiu-jitsu and I was on recruiting duty in the Marine Corps. Okay. And next to the recruiting office opened up this little gym, a martial arts gym, and it was a guy from Brazil. And this is just after Hoist Gracie started winning in the 90s. And my coach, who was an old Marine and old cop, said, you know, I've taught you most of the stuff that I have to teach, why don't you go check them out? And if yeah. it's good, bring it back to us so that we have that in our system. And I went over there and expected to kick the shit out of everybody in the room, which normally would happen. Yeah. And I got tooled up by like a 16-year-old kid that was 150 pounds, just completely freaking jacked me up. And what, did like, do, what did he do? What did he, what did he, what was the surprising moment? What did he do to you? Like, so, you know, like, uh, I was used to grappling. I yeah. got a takedown on him. And when we hit the ground, he put me in a triangle, which is a choke with the legs, right? <laughs> so we hit the ground, and all of a sudden, before I knew it, like this, I can't get out of this weird position, right? I've, I've never seen people fighting off their back before at the time that this happened. And this kid who, you know, I was probably, I'm not a big guy, I'm small, but this kid was probably 20 pounds, 30 pounds lighter than me and probably 10 years younger than me. And he just looked like a, a clown. Like I couldn't reconcile how this kid just tooled me up and as we hit the ground i couldn't get out of his legs he'd locked it in and i couldn't get out and i i didn't know the move so it, it i had just, no way of it was just there yeah i had no way of understanding what was happening to me so i thought okay that was a fluke right sometimes yeah. in fighting flukes happen people get knocked yeah. out and they shouldn't have been knocked out you know if you look at it uh, in terms of scoring say, okay well that guy was you know losing the entire fight and he got knocked out so i thought it was a fluke and uh so we went again. So in, in jiu-jitsu, you tap hands and bump fist, and you start again. And sure as shit, the exact same move a second time in a row. And then I got tooled up with some other stuff I don't even remember. But I remember two triangles in a row and then going with a bunch of other guys. And I, I was head fucked at that time mentally. Yeah. I couldn't process what occurred. And so when I left, I literally was beside myself. Because not only did I not win any of the fights in there, but I didn't understand what had happened. And it was like, it literally was like neutering you. Like, that's it. So a lot of people will stop themselves there and not go any further. That was the norm actually at our gym. And, and at the time I didn't understand that. And it was very hard to come back in the second time because you're like, I'm, I'm a man. But rationally said, okay, if you want to beat that, you have to learn that. And then maybe you take some of that magic and you can apply it to other people. So you got to do that. So it was extremely hard to keep coming back and taking those ass whoopings for the first couple of months. It was, it how was, did you do? How did I you? hated, I hated going through the doors, but I knew that that was the medicine, right? I, yeah. I knew that was the solution to the problem. I didn't like it. Yeah. And it probably took 
three months before I could start really actively defending against decent guys and six months until I was applying that to them. Yeah. And then it, after that, it just like, and this is the early stages of that kind of being out very early. What? There's no material. There's no, there's no going on YouTube and seeing. There wasn't a YouTube. The, the, the history of it is what people say and VHS videos and VHS. So, so that was the next step. The next step was to get the uh, Gracie's in action uh, VHS tape and watch that and study that. Well, and look well, at what to, for people that didn't live through that, you know, like what? How did you even get that? Was, yeah. was like, was it a back? Like, hey, somebody at the gym has no, a bunch of VHSs. I, I, I realize how crazy this is in the moment to to say this, but you had to get a magazine, and then you'd either <laughs> submit it, like meaning you'd cut out a little thing, and then submit it with a credit card number or whatever you had to pay with it, or you'd call a number. So, like Black Belt Magazine was the common one that was yeah. selling these yeah. VHS tapes, yeah. and then you know you give them your information, credit card number, whatever it is, and then they send it to you in you know four weeks or whatever the norm was, and then you get this nice little box, and you know, and I can't remember who it was, something like Panther Productions or whatever you know, producer of that was, and then you'd watch it, and there was no immediate feedback until you know, I got with an instructor, and my instructor was a, a black belt under Hickson Gracie, so for anybody that knows the, the lineage of jiu-jitsu, Hickson was the family champion yeah, he forever. Was the, he was the guy. Yeah. He was the guy. Uh, you saw these videos of this alien material from another country, and you're like, it's clicking in your head as far well, as... Well, what, it wasn't clicking in my head. That's the problem. It's like you, the, you, you, can, you, you, didn't, you don't know what was going on in that you, screen? Yeah, so when you watch it and you see these things, you can say, okay, he's doing this. That's a mechanical movement, and I understand the mechanical movement, but when you go to apply it with resistance, it doesn't work out the same. Yeah. And so all these little nuances had to be put into place to prevent them from being able to resist, at least successfully. Yeah. So you, so you get exposed to this weird new jujitsu Magic. Magic, mm -hmm. uh, black magic on the ground and all this stuff. You, uh, you, you see it as a, 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 this is like, I need to master this. Is, is, is your, yeah, your there was process? no doubt. I mean, it, it, it literally just smashed my, my game, my style. Mm -hmm. and, and I could take that style all over the place and beat everyone. And then all of a sudden I can do nothing. The style <laughs> was completely useless. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This is this, uh, this moment in time. I remember like at least in Mexico, we would get these, uh, we had video stores. In the video stores, we got the first UFC fights, and we would put them on. Back when everybody was wearing their old like, uniforms, you know, the guy with a, a single boxing glove, you know, oh, yeah, <laughs> the uh, the savat guy, I don't think it was a kickboxer or savat guy, French guy, yeah, beating the shit out of the sumo wrestler, you know, with his fucking wooden legs, and just seeing all of our childhood delusions by of watching Bruce Lee and. Van Damme, all that just kind of melting away. And also just a lot of us were invested in like an art of some sort and like, ah, oh, we probably, and then all of a sudden you see this guy walk in there, skinny guy with a, with a gi on. Like, what the hell is this guy doing with this gi on? It just murders everybody there. That changes, that changed the fundamental kind of like a, a zeitgeist, the general zeitgeist of what works or what doesn't work in a fight. You know, that kind of changed things. Now, most people in, in, in that period, I mean, there wasn't a UFC back then. So you, you, when you were training that, like, what was your intention? I'm just going to be more, more proficient, dangerous person to strangle people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you've committed 
a ton of time and energy and passion to this art, this, yeah. this thing, this style. And I was really focused on reality. I wasn't focused on the katas and that kind of stuff. I was focused on actual fighting. And I used it on a regular basis. Uh, I, I couldn't reconcile how could this get taken apart? How is it so effective all over the place, whether it's in a gym or on the street? And this, this little technique, these little modifications, all of a sudden just took it apart. And very, very difficult to process. And until you do that thing and you see how it works, almost everybody has the same story, no matter who they are. Yeah. Coming into a jiu-jitsu gym, almost everybody. Yeah. You know, if it's um, a D1 national champion wrestler, maybe their experience is a little different. But for normal people, yeah, it's the same it's experience. A, it's like uh, walking into quicksand is my experience with it. Like all of a sudden, you're like, oh, this is solid grunt. Yeah, I mean, it gets it gets uh, explained to a lot of people as as a feeling of drowning, of suffocating. Yeah, and and it it's, it's that yeah, exactly it's like, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're doing this uh, while you're going through your uh, military career. Yeah, still in the Marine Corps and then actively fighting. And at the time, uh, and when you say actively fighting, I mean, are you involved in these uh, the first uh, versions of these? Like, what are those like? Yeah. So in it, where I was in Missouri. Uh, it was illegal, as it was in almost every state, which is why they would do it on, on reservations, right? They would take these, these Native American reservations, and they would have casinos and other places, and they host the fights. Um, so it was not looked at as anything respectable. So it wasn't like... When, when you, you know, say it was illegal, I mean, it, was, it wasn't allowed to happen. Correct. But participating in this... Participating in it was illegal. Okay. At, at the time, right? <laughs> so you couldn't do this. So it was closed door stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and when you fact, say closed door, I mean, it's, it's, how, how big were the crowds? They weren't. They weren't that big initially, right? So initially, the first few fights that I did, you know, we might have fifty to hundred people in a room, and and this they is, did happen on on mats. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of them were happening on concrete. So, but there's no, ca started, no, no cages. Just, there's no just, nothing. There's just, no just, ring. There's no cage. There's no nothing. It's just, just mats, a room with mats. And, and agree a gentlemanly agreement between two guys. And Yeah, they were pulling fighters from all over. And we didn't have, um, you know, set weight classes so you could fight whoever. And we were very one-dimensional in terms of styles. So it would be like a jiu-jitsu guy fighting a boxer or it would be a jiu-jitsu guy fighting a wrestler or it was, it was one style against another one, like almost purist in yeah. form. So you could see how that particular thing fared with another style. Yeah. Unlike now where everybody's hybrid. Yeah. Everybody's doing everything. Everybody's beige. Everybody's yes. beige. That's what it is. It, but yeah. it's, a, but it's, a, it's an interesting time to kind of like be like witness and also just participating actively and it's blown up it's it's nothing like that and so when we were doing this people would look at it and be like what what is that so is that like is that karate or is it wrestling or what is it and you you couldn't define it you couldn't really what's put the equipment finger. like at the time yeah uh, we like? we had mouthpieces and groin cups and so no, nothing then, on your hands no we so had in the beginning we had nothing on our hands and then eventually it went to four ounce gloves maybe a couple of years in so basically bare you were bare knuckle yeah, it was, it, it, and everybody knew at the time that if you had no gloves on, it was actually more dangerous for the puncher. Yeah, yeah, your hands right. are going to break. Yeah, and so we, you can we, we headshot. Had a, yeah, we had a guy, Nessio, uh, here, who's a bare-knuckle boxer, and he just came from after a fight, and, the, like, the first thing I noticed on him is his hands are, Yeah, you know, um, yeah I mean, the, those, those bones are so small, and the head is so hard. Yeah. And even if, like, you, you know, you were talking to me about Lethway, when they put their head down, they tuck their chin like that, and yeah, you hit yeah. thigh on you, the head with your fist 
Ooh, it's like a hit a good. wall. Yeah. So you, the minimal equipment, cups, mouthpieces, mats on the ground, 50 people screaming and alcohol, I imagine, the entertainment you know, of some sort. Interesting. Or was it first more? couple? No, the first couple didn't have it. So it was like the fighters could bring like three or four of their friends and they would charge them like a hundred bucks or something. And uh, it, it wasn't that drinking. It wasn't that vibe. It was very quiet. Yeah. Very, very quiet. Very room. like fighting ner- fight nerds. Would would it be like a thing? Some, like people that were interested were. in it, like look at this. Or or the oddity aspect. The I think I think the I, I think the oddity. Like people didn't understand what it was, and people were kind of trying to figure it out as they watched it. And it was a couple of years later. So in the early days, like one of the the first formed ones was called the Universal Challenge. And in that, people were sitting on mats, kind of just sitting in a circle watching this unfold. They were very, very quiet, very respectful. Cut to two or three years later, this guy, Brian Madden in the Midwest, started putting on this thing called the Submission Fighting Championships. And then you get into putting it in a ring, you get into 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people. And people drunk, people screaming, kick his fucking ass. (laughs) Like, okay. Cock fight. Then it's a human cockfight. In fact, that's actually what was called at the time by a lot of people. Like, oh, that's human cockfighting. They didn't see or respect the the strategy, with the exception of the Brazilians and the Japanese. And the Japanese revered fighters. So anytime that we're in Japan, you got an immense amount of respect. And and did you get the uh, the whole brawler individuals showing up as well yeah and I, I think people know those those guys are good for entertainment those guys are good for for the money makers so yeah. they respect that they're not the best in terms of technique they're yeah, not yeah. the best in terms of strategies uh, and they're not the best fighters yeah. but they bring the crowds right yeah. people want to see that they want to see conflict yeah absolutely you so you're there at the beginning of it now where, where does that leave your career that's a great question. Are you showing up at work with uh, with marks on you? Are they worried yeah, about your... Uh... Yeah, a little bit of that is going on. So officially, the Marine Corps could not support me because it was against Marine yeah. Corps regulations. But I had a great, great, great boss. So I was enlisted, and my boss was an officer. And usually, that's not the best of relationships in general if you talk to guys. I had this a guy who was uh, a chief warrant officer, CBO3, his name was Frank Wood. And anyway, long story short, uh, he supported me. He's like, I love what you're doing. It's great. Keep doing it. So I would show up with, with shiners and, you know, teeth knocked out and injuries <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and what ended up happening uh, is guys would start coming, recruiters, with a pull-up bar, and they'd do a pull-up challenge at the events. And they see that, see that guy there? That's Todd Fox. He's, he's a Marine. He's active duty Marine. He's doing this and that. And they would utilize it to leverage what it was they were doing, which is putting bodies in the Marine Corps. So even though officially um, I wasn't supposed to be doing it, it was happening. It was, and they supported it indirectly by showing up. And, you know, obviously Marines love that shit. Yeah. So it, it was a weird kind of thing where they said, you can't do that. But, yeah. 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 So you... So, so you're, you're pursuing, so you're pursuing the side quest of basically trying to figure out how to, you know, get the better of people in a ring. Well, before there was a ring, uh, this is unsustainable. It seems, like yeah. b- b- on both, uh, basically burning on both ends. I guess. Yeah, way. but the thing is, no one knew. So, like what you know today, when you're looking at it yeah. in hindsight, yeah. what this monster has become. Like no one knew where it could go or what it was going to be, and there was really no money in it. 
So you did it for the passion of it. That's an interesting question. How much, how much for a fight back then? Like uh, well, in the beginning, it was, it was if you win, you get paid, right? And it's <laughs> a few hundred bucks. So it's not really worth it because a hospital visit is going to cost you thousands of dollars, yeah. even back then. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as it progressed, like the one I mentioned, SFC, that one was a few thousand. But the way the promoters did it was they said, okay, we'll give you a grand to fight. And then we're going to give you however many tickets you want, and you'll get a percentage of it. So that gave you an incentive to go out and sell tickets yeah. right, to promote yeah. your own fight. So, yeah. But you could, you could make some money on the back end. And if you did it right, you make three or four grand. And that was in the mid-90s. So that was for us, for young guys who were doing something that they were passionate about, that was a revenue stream that was considerable. Yeah. 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 What happens? And something has to change. Something has to give. Well, uh, in, in my case, yeah. it was an offer that I got while I was doing it. So I had moved out to L.A. Uh, to be in the motion picture liaison. I was still training, still fighting, still competing. And uh, as I was teaching, uh, a guy came in to start training with us. And at the time, Hickson was a, a great MMA fighter, but we didn't have a lot of MMA guys. In fact, I was the only guy that was actively doing it at that time. And a guy came in from the UK and he was taking privates. And we had famous people, directors, actors, producers come in all the time. And it was in a place called Pacific Palisades. And he'd come in and train. And eventually he had asked if I would work with him. And the reason he picked me is not because of the jujitsu, it was because I had the MMA experience. And so he wanted to kind of focus on more of the reality-based stuff. So in that, he eventually said, hey, I want you to come meet my, my girlfriend or fiance, whatever she was at the time, uh, in Beverly Hills. You know, we got this thing. There's a, a proposition we want to make. And I was still in the Marine Corps. So um, if you know what service alphas are, they're these green uniforms that they wear. Um, and I was in service alphas. I went to the location that he gave me. And when I got there, his, his fiance was Madonna. And it was Guy Ritchie. Guy loved training, hardcore about it, and he wanted me to basically be with him to train him when she went out on tour. So basically, so, he wanted like a you hang out private trainer to show me how to be better at this. Yeah. So she needed another security guy, and he wanted somebody that was a jujitsu guy. So it, it worked out perfect in his mind, and he was right. It it, it was great because I could do security, but then when he wanted to pull me, he could pull me from the detail, and <laughs> we could train. Roll. Yeah. And that's it. And so. We when, did that. When, when, they, when they ask you to be security, like, what's your security experience at this point? Actually, it's down here. It's down here in Mexico. Down, down so, here in Mexico. Yeah, so uh, this could go a lot of different paths. But <laughs> so another thing that uh, I wasn't cleared to do uh, was to go work protective details. But speaking Spanish and being used to this area, I would get guys who would ask me to take them to certain places. So in the Hollywood area, you have these guys coming down here to vacation and do business deals. And so I would come down as an assistant, as a security guy, as a transfer, as whatever. And I would come down with them. And eventually what happened is a group of fishermen started fishing down in Sinaloa. There's a, a lake called Backrack, and it has the, the largest largemouth bass in North America. Great Massive fishing. monsters. Great fishing. Have you been there? Yeah. The place is crazy. So uh, they started going, and they kind of realized what was going on in the area, and I got called to basically accompany them, be security for them. So, you know, you'd go from wherever you're going, you'd fly into Los Mochis, and then you drive from Mochis down to Wasabe, and then you go from Wasabe into the mountains, somewhere between basically Culiacan and, and Los Mochis, but up in the mountains. And it's it's desolate area. And obviously all the traffickers are in that area, they own that area, they control that or area. Or walking around with a gun in there. Everybody. I mean, it's just, it's just known, it's understood, and that's where the revenue source is. So... 
they brought me down there to do that. And so I would start to do site surveys and advances and I build relationships in the community. Where are you getting these skills to do site surveys and advances? Like where is that coming well, from? Well, I got, I got those skills partially in the, in Marine, the Marine Corps. Corps. And then I went to other organizations to get but, but the, those skills. But you're, you're doing that, basically getting the experience. Yeah, well, the real experience came from, so these fishermen lived in a, a, like a compound when they were down there, right? So the, the little village is called Bacubirito because there are Bacas and Burros. Bacurito is it. And then Bacurato is the really small village on the lake. So they'd come down and they'd put them in a compound because all these guys are rich white guys. So I jumped the fence and made relationships in the community, talking yeah. to people, um, as you know, I, I start to learn about their art. I start to learn about their music. I start to learn about what they eat, and uh, that paid dividends. And it, in, of everything that I ever learned in protection, that is the number one skill: cultural penetration, and just through conversations. Yeah. And I'd go somewhere and like, let's say, uh, Los Tigres del Norte, big band in Mexico, right? Especially in that area. And they had a song, Yo Soy de San Luis Potosí. So I learned the song because I'm from San Luis. Yeah. And so I started learning the song. And there's a, in Missouri, there's a city called Potosi. Potosi. Yeah. Uh, and then you start learning that. And then you have this other thing to connect on. And then you start learning another thing. And then now all of a sudden, you know, I'm going into the little abarotes and getting, you know, cacahuate sapones. And, you know, you start to develop these skills. And then now this guy's going to help you. And, you know, just as we talked about as I came in here, across the street is a boxing gym that a friend of a friend runs, a guy I know down here who's a, a champ. Uh, and all of a sudden you have these networks of people and they're not connected to anything in particular. So they're not going to pin it to you. It's like. So for a lot of people that uh, view security, they view it as a, a quiet guy with sunglasses standing like a statue, but they don't realize that a lot of the work they it's actually quality work is going out there, forming relationships, bartering, gift giving, cultural immersion, language. Uh, like when I would do things of that nature, I would uh, wear the local uh, soccer jersey everywhere, like depending on where I was, Absolutely. and I would learn and memorize everything I can about the last few games. And that allowed me to kind of like open conversations with people. Absolutely. That's the crux of it. That Those human relationships are what are going to keep you safe and or put you in harm's way. And that's a, pr that's a pretty interesting university. You know, that's a pretty interesting university for that. You know, so uh, something further happened. Some of the fishermen that I was with were really good men, and they saw the poverty because that's another level of poverty, right? So here you have poverty, yeah. but there it's completely different. So there's almost nothing. And they saw it and said, hey, you know, do you guys want to throw in some money? and we'll start buying some stuff. And so we bought some stuff for them and distributed around the town. And then they would go back two to three times a year for fishing. And the same kind of core guys would go back each trip, but then they'd bring other businessmen. And eventually what happened is we were bringing stuff from the U.S. And what we found that, it, you know, we'd bring U.S. gear in that was old or used or whatever. It didn't make sense because then they were trying to hit us on the ingress and tariffs and all this other stuff. Didn't make sense. So we said, okay, we're going to buy it there. So we would go to like Lay and go to Lay and buy in bulk. So you'd buy uh, beans in bulk and rice in bulk and flour in bulk, maseca in bulk. And then 
when they're there, every time these guys would come in, the people would be happy to see them because they'd come around and they'd yeah. give away these sacks, a kilo sack of this, a kilo sack of that, or whatever, and they're, they're taking care of the people. So they developed relationships that way. And eventually, some of the guys would also jump the fence with me at night and hang out with the people, have drinks, and, and talk to them. And they'd know them by name, and they'd play soccer with the kids. And so this charity lasted for, for 20 years, you know, and it was three to four times a year. So That's awesome. Yeah, and it's and it's great for information. A lot of these kids that were in the middle of nowhere ended up moving like to Mexico City, and then from there into the states. And you know, these guys have have grown up very successful. And to maintain that network and that relationship for twenty plus years out of a little tiny fishing village in Sinaloa, that's massive. So you find yourself in a room with Madonna, <laughs> Guy Ritchie, with that kind of in your well, that and amongst other things. Uh, the offer is to provide security in tandem with also training with this guy that's really into just flying. So note to people that want to start shit with Guy Ritchie, I guess, you know? Guys, guys for real, he had a karate background and a judo background when he started with me. And yeah. he, he went 100% all the time. He didn't ask to go light, like celebrity-style training. Yeah. Um, he, he, was, he had some grit to him, and I'm sure he still does to this day. Yeah. What was uh, So that's like your first into this entertainment other, entertainment yeah. security aspect of yeah. it which is I don't know I've, I've never I've seen the periphery of it and I know people like Ryan that mm -hmm. do some of that um, but I, I, that's a that's a different uh, that's a different complicated complex type of setting right yeah so entertainment is based on emotion and it's not based on reality so it's emotion and it's a show um, and I came from a world that was based on logic and reason and reality. Yeah. Um, and there were conse serious consequences if you were wrong or you didn't apply certain strategies or ideologies. And so entering into that realm was uh, another wake up, right? Because just like jujitsu, you know, going into jujitsu and just getting smoked, same thing. So they operated in a very different way without logic, without reason, with emotion. And everything is about the show. It's, it's, it's all theater all the time. And yeah. so that took me probably at least as long as jujitsu to acclimate to. Yeah. You know, this, the, 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 uh, I don't think, I mean, when you say emotion, I mean, uh, your client, I want to go here, but I don't want you to around me, but this is a bad place. I should be really specifically, really close by No visuals. That is that, that type of uh, yeah. situation. Yeah, that, but just, Everything, everything was, was based on an emotion. So the, the beauty of, of what those people produce, right, is, is that emotion. It, the problem is that it's fleeting, it's temporary, it's, it's, something, yeah. it's not something I can build a plan on, and it's in the moment, right? The result is amazing. When you look at music and you look at uh, film or you look at art, they, they're phenomenal at what they do but they live in a different reality in their head and they live in a different reality in the world. Yeah. And so trying to make plans and organize and structure. Structure, structure around it. It's like they, are, they hate structure. And so you're brought in to do a specific thing. And on one end of structure is like you build a cell around them, right? And a big fortress around them. And that's you know really serious security. And at the other end is no security, nothing at all. And so trying to find a compromise was the challenge and then how you presented it to them was everything and that's really that's the takeaway for me is i have to frame it in a way that they can understand it they yeah. can process it and it leads them down the path to make the best choice for them not one for of, me but for them one of my mentors when it comes to security like i, I did 
I did some security work myself. Um, he used to tell me that a good head of security is an educator. You know, and when it, when I'm like, what do you mean an educator? You have to explain your job to your client in such a way where they can understand it, accept it, and also learn from it. And if you do that, you know, it makes your job a little bit easier. And this is for politicians, and like I, I did work for that for a few politicians, uh, not celebrities. I imagine it's a whole different uh, different ball game. But basically, but basically, explaining your actions or what is going to happen to somebody who is about emotions and about you know, living in the moment or create, being creative. It's like, I can imagine that would be like a, so you have to basically figure out that structure. It's not just figuring out, you have to first learn how they think. You learn how they think, you learn how they operate, you learn what drives it, like what created this thing. And, and it can be an incident or, or a series of incidents in their childhood and you start to figure that out. And then you start to see things through their lens and then you click back, toggle over to reality and say, how do I blend these two worlds so that the outcome is the best possible outcome for them, not just me. But so there's compromises on both ends, basically. Like on yeah. your end, you have to be willing to forgo certain things if that is... Adjusting on the fly is a big part of what we do. Getting information at the last minute or a change of plans. Like you spend a week advancing something, sorting it out in, in a high-risk area and then they can have a feeling and decide that's not happening, they're going somewhere else or doing something else. That, that's, an, that's, that's an interesting aspect. They're, they're, uh, you're also, it's, not, it's also, emotions are part of it, but intuition, like their, their intuition is like a factor that is it's a complete wild card. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, there are a lot of factors in that intuition, right? And so intuition is huge in protection. I, I, I believe in it. Yeah. And uh, it, it's kept me it, out if, of some really bad stuff. For people that uh, want like, to attach supernatural, what, if, to you, what is intuition to you? Well, it's a feeling that you can't describe, and it maybe isn't purely emotional and isn't purely logical, and it's just this, this overwhelming sense of something. My, my, uh, I, I describe it as a... Uh, a realization that your brain hasn't been able to come up uh, words for. So when you have a realiza internal realization of something, but your brain doesn't hasn't been able to put it into words for yourself. Yeah, and and, and it's really worked well for me, yeah. uh, especially in really tight spots. And, and uh, this this I mean this is a pretty high level gig to start off in. Uh, this, this. I mean, when I say high level, I mean it's, 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 it's not, it's not the easiest uh, first one. Yeah, those, I mean, in kind. terms of profiles, as high a profile as you get. This and, is, and this is, in late nineties. Uh, it was around ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah. This is, both of them are. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely guy was at his peak, and you could probably argue that Madonna was at, uh, yeah, as well. Both was, of them, both of them were. Yeah. The eyes were on them. And all of a sudden, you find yourself within those eyes. Yeah, I think I don't think that I had the ability coming from the Midwest to really understand what I was in. So, like for somebody that's looking at your work, you know, what's what's some of the first things you do there? Like you're trying to set up this structure on this, you know, again this organic pulsating thing that's moving all about. Who do you ask? Who do you call? Like, what do you, like, how, how do you figure that out? 
Yeah, at the time I had belonged to a couple different organizations and one was like ASIS, if you know what those guys are. And they had a executive protection guy uh, who was a retired cop. And uh, he put on courses for that and he did that. And I had done Blackwater's uh, courses on that. And so I had some exposure, um, but nothing could prepare you for that because what you're training for is more of a diplomatic security kind yeah, of protocol yeah, and like service state department package exactly and and i have that background too and and uh, what they do and teach is great for you know diplomats and executives and things like that but in terms but of entertainers international airports no, no. press conferences no. filming on locations dealing with local authorities in countries where you can't speak to them like that all of that all yeah, of a but without the infrastructure right? And without the deep pockets to fund it. So um, I had a guy who actually used to run the protective service operations program at Fletzy come out and see some stuff behind the scenes in the tour. Like, why don't you just do this? I'm like, it doesn't work that way. And he's like, you can't do this? No. He goes, fuck. (laughs) Like, yeah, this is a different world. And we don't have the funding to do those kinds of things and they're not going to tolerate it. So um, GB3, we'll just call them GB3. So you were you were asking some people about this. You were trying to figure it out for yourself. I was piecing it together. I was reading and I was watching and I was trying to figure out how to integrate um, and still get the job done. And that was not easy. Yeah, that's complex. Like, what's your what's what's your first like? Oh, okay, we're gonna go do these series of things. Like, what was that like? It was pretty fast um, because we were going to take a vehicle onto a tarmac and we we're going to get on a Gulfstream, a G5. And Have you done that before? Never. So Never. You're, you're learning on the fly. How well, do you? Well, I had gone. I mean, I, I had yeah. a lot of information yeah. and knowledge. I just hadn't done, done it, it to this degree. Yeah. And so, are you admitting that to your clients, or are you just like, yeah, well, this is natural. Let me just do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, guy, guy knew the deal. He known that I had done protective work down here, and uh, he knew, you know, what my experience was. So I was open with him. It was just that they had said, "Here, it's yours. Go. So go." And there were uh, a number of people on the team, they were all British, and those guys did not like it. They didn't like this outsider coming in. Uh, They didn't like that I was fighting and training with Guy. They didn't have those skills, so there was this animosity. Uh, Were these the types that are hired for their profile? Or Or were they professionals? Were there a, a, a combination of both, but they had, some of them had backgrounds. There was another guy that didn't have any background, but he had run things uh, because he was smart and he selected people that, that were trained. Um, and so coming in, they were super defensive politics. and territorial. Politics. Politics. They, didn't, they didn't like it. In fact, gotcha. they, they provided uh, disinformation, uh, misinformation. Uh, they manipulated a ton of stuff that was coming my way, and they would say to my face things that just weren't factually sound to get me to make a decision that wasn't correct. So after a few times of that, then it becomes much more complex because now I've got to try to figure out what reality is based on what I see and based on what they're telling me, based on what the client's saying. Verify. Absolutely. Cross-reference. So, yeah, so the, the old adage in, in the government used to be trust but verify, and it was the opposite of that. It was like, I'm not trusting until it's verified. Yeah. Like, no way. And, you know, you only need to be burnt once or twice, and it's like... You're done. Yeah, yeah. so you look at, you know, uh, source reliability, and, you know, you look at information credibility. Uh, it's, 
it's, as a, it's management of people, it's management of drama, it's administration, it's a lot of things, a, a lot of weird things they probably don't teach you at the, uh, at the yeah. executive protection uh, course that you're going No, it's all grace-based stuff, you yeah. know, and it's all stuff that's not directly related to that job. It's, it's soft skills, right? Yeah. And all the hard skills I learned are great, but in reality, everything that I was applying was a soft skill. Yeah. What's, uh, like, this is late 90s. What does your gear bag look like? What do you, you nothing. Uh, no, you, not nothing. Like, it, like, it, 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 was, it was limited, right? So you is, had. Was there, <laughs> there, was there, was there any, tr there's no trauma medicine. There's no uh, trauma kits in there. No, no, so there were first aid and then there were edge line kind of trauma stuff. Um, you know, they had masks, they had nasal pharyngeals, but like in terms of like cat tourniquets and quick clot, like at the time quick clot was just being developed and it was a powder, if you remember. Um, they didn't have any of that. You didn't have chest seals, you know, you didn't have Israeli bandages, you didn't have any of that stuff. So you would have, you know, bandages and maybe nasal pharyngeal and a couple of wraps and, you know, very rudimentary, nothing at all. I mean, because at the time we didn't have 20 plus years of war. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's yeah, there's nothing to kind of base that on yeah. yet. You have uh, you have this new job. You're dealing with these people who are openly hostile to your presence. There probably uh, you have this uh, responsibility. It's a big one. Uh, the the travel, the figuring things out. What was your what was your first mistake? There's always one like I like oh, I, I was yeah, I was yeah. asked that question when it comes to some of these people starting off on some of these processes. What was your first mistake and the lesson that you got, got from? You them? know what the the mistakes were vast. I just you know to even pick one out is difficult. But you know timings of things. One of the things too that that happened because guy had so much confidence in me with jujitsu. One of the the problems was that he would just throw something at me and expected it would get done, and I would do everything I could. But some things were were new like. Um, driving on the left side, right? Like, okay, I'm not used to this. This is new. Like, I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. I'm in the wrong side of the car. And so probably one of the, the first mistakes that I recall is just the timing of that, like making so many wrong turns on the wrong side of the road and the wrong side of the car, having so many issues there. And then, like, <laughs> something that should have been, I don't know if you know the roads in London, but they're not straight lines. It's not a grid system. So you're going up and around and over, probably like Boston is. Okay. Um, and, and the biggest thing initially that occurred was like through not understanding some of those variables, my timeline was off. So we would always do a reverse timeline to figure out how much time we needed to do something. And, uh, and I, was, I was late picking up Guy yeah. by like 40 minutes. And it was all related to traffic and driving and things like that, not having that buffer, not knowing, for example, the, the timeline in that city at that time. So knowing, not knowing and not admitting or openly solving limitations that you ah, I'll figure it out and all of a sudden you find yourself against the wall yeah because my attention was divided yeah my attention was so divided amongst so many things that you couldn't be a hundred percent at any one of those things and if it happened to be the thing that you put 60 percent attention on it didn't turn out so a good. question that a very young me would ask you as somebody starting off on this business What's the explanation to your client after you get, get late like that? Oh, I just, I fell on my sword. I came clean. Like, look, this is what happened. I didn't anticipate this. It won't happen again. I'll make sure this, you know, X, Y, Z. But I just, I ate it. And he knew who I was. He knew yeah. what I was about. Yeah. So it, it worked out. So I didn't have to come up with there, anything for that. Some people don't do that. <laughs> it, you know, uh, I have a couple really big clients still to this day that if you come to them with a bullshit excuse and they smell that, 
they even get a whiff of bullshit, you're done. You're done. But if you come and say, hey, I fucked up. I fucked up. This is what I did. This is what I was thinking. You know, I, I won't do that again. And, 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 and tr- trust and honesty is a very powerful currency in that realm. It, it, it's everything. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. So that's so interesting <laughs> foray into that. You, uh, so you're working this, uh, this detail. Um, how long was that? Was that? Uh, we did some work leading up to uh, the tour. It was called the Drowned World Tour. Uh, we did some work leading up to it, and then we did the tour, uh, which was the U.S. and Europe. Was this your first, basically, touring with a client? Yeah, this was, this was the first big, real deal, like, holy shit kind of tour. I mean, a lot what, of moving parts, a lot, a lot of people what, coming and going. What is that like? It's basically, it's basically being involved in this roving government, basically, in it a is way, a government. right? Yeah, it's a it's government. A, you got 200 people uh, on the tour. You got 30 trucks full of sets and all kinds of crazy stuff. You got... Uh, tour buses, you got jets, you got, you know, private jet for her, and you got band and dancers and other people as well. Um, you know, you're moving country to country, city to city. Um, you're dealing with the family politics, you're dealing with the management group politics, you're dealing with the individual, like, execution level people politics, and you're crossing through all those thresholds, and if, if you get hung up in one of those spots, you can't complete your main objective. So, you, you're, you're, so again, new guy asking, you know, you're put in charge of this specific uh, function on this tour. Like, what do, you, what, do you, what do you wish somebody told you about that first responsibility? You know, focus more on the hotels, uh, figure out exit, exit, exit None strategies. Of like, None of that. What was, what was, that. What was the thing it, you wish you could go back and <laughs> somebody it, tell you about it? To have more flexibility. Not be stern. This is the box, and you can't go out of this. This is the way we're going to do things. To to explain to me that having more flexibility will lead to a better end outcome, right, and less stress and less bullshit, and to have a sense of humor, to see the humor and all of this silly stuff that goes on. You know, it took me years to get to the point where I could laugh at all of the silly, crazy, unreal shit that would happen in that realm. Yeah, but when you were there, it's like serious. At the end of no, this, is the, the world depends on this a- aspect of it, and you, you didn't uh... so insignificant in reality. Yeah, but in that little space, in that sphere, it's critical. It's for critical. survival. It's critical. Uh, how many? How like how many? How many stops were on that tour? I couldn't even tell you. I mean, you could probably go out, look it up, but I would guess that we probably hit twenty countries or so in Europe, and we hit maybe fifty cities in the U.S. and um, Actually, uh, 9-11 happened when we had a show scheduled at the Staples Center on that tour. And she had uh, a house in New York. um, And she had her people there and uh, even family members there in New York. So uh, I had the displeasure of waking her up on 9-11 in L.A. In in L.A. at her house in Beverly Hills uh, because I was staying there. And uh, that that was a whole other conversation to have because she was... Uh, not happy to be getting woken up so early and, uh, you know, by the security guy. Yeah. So that was, that was different. Guy understood it. She didn't. And, uh, you know, it took probably a day for it to sink in. And we ended up canceling, obviously, that night. But, um, yeah, that was an interesting time. This, this, uh, this moving to, from place to place every, every basically every, every day. You're, you're doing this uh, giant event. You have to 
write down where you're where you are at a certain day sometimes on your hand or you know on the on the front end um you know it's easy to remember because it's exciting and it's new and, yeah. and your retention's really good uh when i do it now uh, it doesn't matter what city i'm in it just it's just another city and i've been there 30 or 40 or 50 times and it's a complete blur but it, in in the early days it was so interesting it's so exciting that i remember every little component of all of those places yeah it's new it's a new experience yeah it's yeah. A, it's a it's like uh yeah the first time going through it and and it, and it was and yeah. it was it was something that you can't learn any other way than doing it nobody can teach you nobody can show you nobody can tell you you have to do it and you have to feel it outside of the uh unfortunate events of 911 like on this tour, like what were some of the lessons, like cities that were problematic, uh, issues that you might have had? Most of those were in Europe, and most of those were kind of um, paparazzi focused. Yeah, you know where uh, you'd have to employ some really crazy, unconventional techniques to stop them. Basically, uh, people people were sniping your clients. They wanted. Yeah, to get them and yeah, but you don't want them to know where you're staying. You don't want them to know what you're driving. You don't want them to know kind of what, where you're going to be and what you're doing. And are one you, of the are things you running counterintelligence on your hand, or you're, uh, uh, in, in a very light sort of way. So I, because I come from the Marine Corps, I had understood what I had in the way of MSG duty, Marine Security Guard duty, and what a regional security officer at the embassy did. So I had at least the forethought to go talk to those guys and, or to have a call with those guys or to have them come visit me and offer tickets to a show for their family. Um, and that paid huge dividends for me. So I had that. But with respect to paparazzi, there's no relationship. And something that people don't get and I didn't get uh, is that while I'm doing all of this to prevent certain things from unfolding, there's a publicist who is letting that information go out so that all of that does indeed happen. So yeah. they will undo everything. everything. And uh, I didn't know that. And nobody told me. And, and uh, you know, I guess it makes sense in hindsight. But, you know, why would they do that? Well, because they're trying to... They're trying to get, they're trying to get the public eye, but not, you know. Yeah. And, and so that was another fight that you had to have on a regular basis. And then you... You know, you'd compartmentalize information just like we do in the military and say this person gets this piece and that person gets this piece and this piece. And so nobody gets the big picture and therefore you can't be compromised easily. Yeah. This, uh, this aspect of also being irresponsible for their moral security. Uh, when, I, when I say moral, I mean in the public eyes as far as what image, yeah, image, image control. Yeah. yeah, that yeah is, that's, that's a factor too. But you, you have to remember when you get with people like Madonna you know, the more provocative, the better. And yeah. so all publicity is good publicity, even when they're saying things that would was that be a, seemingly bad. Was that an issue for you where you were like, Madonna is doing something that is, hopefully nobody takes a picture of it, but it was that was what it was for, maybe, I guess. W w did you run into issues where you weren't part, you, were, you weren't in on the <laughs> fact, the joke, basically? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that would certainly happen, where they knew what you would do if they told you what they were going to do. And then it's too late. You're in the middle of this thing. It's like, oh, man. And that happens sometimes with, with clients. Um, you know, I come from a military and law enforcement background, and then I'm outside a DOJ with a client who's protesting, right? And it's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, this is what it is. But the guys that know understand what your job is, and you don't get to pick and choose. Just like if you were Secret Service, you don't get to say who the president is. Oh, I want to work for this one, but not that one. And yeah. You accept the job, and... You do your business. Yeah. How long does that last? 
so we did that tour. We did um, some videos. I think it was a BMW video. And then we ended up doing a film, which ultimately I think flopped. But Guy did a film with her in Sardinia and Malta. Um, and uh, to be honest, I don't even recall the name of it, but it, it came out and went away yeah. in record time back yeah. when, when movies were significant and they, they stayed in the, the box office for months. months. It, yeah. it, was, it was here and gone. Yeah. Swept away is what it was called. So we did that, and then that wrapped up, and uh, my intention was to go back to just fighting, right, and to be in the Marine Corps Reserve so I can keep the, the credit that I built up in the Marines. And that didn't, that didn't happen because I ended up in this industry and, and sticking around. And we picked up some executives doing bits and pieces overseas, but ultimately what, what brought the lion's share, 80% of our business is entertainment and mostly music with some film mixed in. And how's this, uh, this aspect of going from that detail, how, how, do, how do you transfer from that or how do you, like, what is that like? Do you get a letter of recommendation? Is it all, yeah. of the, uh, all of the experience and the connections that you already made there and how basically utilize them to further your... You, you know, uh, I was so stuck with her and Guy that I really didn't make any relationships with the production manager, the tour manager, or the hindsight. agent. Hindsight, would you well, have No, I was too close. Out? I was like, yeah. I was on them, on yeah. them. And so that, that wasn't um, necessary at the time. And it was such a big thing that I was literally at the top of the top. And, and so I didn't need to develop those relationships. But um, by chance, uh, my roommate at the time was a jiu-jitsu guy at Black Belt at Hickson's teaching. And he had asked me to come train with him and another guy who turned out to be a rock star. And so we're training, and then that guy had an issue with his guy, and the first guy thought it was me. And so... What, do you, mean, what do you mean by that? Like, well, so uh, he wanted also to train jujitsu, and I had told him the story about Madonna and Guy. Yeah. And uh, he's like, that's perfect for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do jujitsu with you, and you can also be secure. Yeah. Yeah, and so the thing is, they don't get that there really isn't a significant relationship between being able to fight and doing security. 99% of security is the opposite. It's, it's planning, organ it's, chore it's choreography is what it yeah. is, right? So you're doing all this thing to set this thing up, and then you have the close protection component where you're on them and you're, you're making movements, like foot movements and stuff like that, and vehicle, vehicle movements, but most of security is not fighting. And if you're fighting, that means everything else yeah, has fucked failed. hundred percent. And also with celebrities, you know, if I'm fighting, who do you think's getting sued? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any money. You can't yeah. take anything from me. So it's just a bad deal. But in their minds, the fact that I can fight. It's like a big plus. It makes me uh, capable of being a security guy. And there, there is n almost no truth to that. But they saw it that way. And again, it's entertainment. It's a story. And they believe it's, the it's, story. And it's also like in some, in some parts of popular culture, the whole aspect of having this big dude behind you, you know. Yeah, and like me, big like me, right? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Five ten and one hundred and seventy five pounds. Yeah. Uh, no, but you know, I had the MMA background, I had the jujitsu background, multiple black belts, and and you know, I had plenty of street credibility where I came from. So uh, that was enough for them. And yeah. some of the clients that we have, and in, including the next one that we're talking about, they're smaller people, and so they don't want this massive human next to them because it draws attention. And they're smart enough to know that they can get in and get out 
if they have, have no signature or a low signature and it's somebody similar in size and it looks right. That makes sense. Because even if you're an untrained eye, you're going to see something. It's going to capture something. Why, why is that five foot tall blonde girl with this guy that's like six, eight, yeah. and 350 pounds? And like, let's, let's, let's figure out what that is. Yeah. Yes. It draws your attention. attention. Absolutely. So you're, you're finding yourself in the same situation. Somebody is looking at your jujitsu skills. Like I can get two for one with this guy. And roll with him on the weekends, and then on the on the days that I have to be on stage, he can figure things out for me. Yeah, and and by the time I got to him, I understood how all of that worked. You already and so I could put it into place. So you had already you already gone through that process and failed a few times, and uh, not yeah. knowing what side of the street to drive in, and all that. So you already had that. Absolutely. All that stuff was out there. I understood how all of it worked. I understood how it needed to be manipulated, modified, adjusted, changed. And he gave me the platform to do it. So it was awesome. a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, this uh, different artist, obviously, but in the same venue, emotion, yeah. uh, creative energy. Uh, Absolutely. Spur of the moment type uh, situation. Yeah. And you already knew how to formulate your fence around that. Yeah, I, I understood what I was dealing with. I understood the environment that I was in, and I understood what I really needed to do to make things work. And I also understood at that time that I had hit a ceiling financially, like this is what the industry will yield for this position. So if I want to grow, I got to have a team. And it's better to put my guys in that I can trust than hire somebody else and be stuck at the ceiling so I can make some money and I can have a, a solid network. So your brain is developing into this aspect of, oh, this, is, this, this could be much better and more structured and bigger. And if I could, I already have yeah. the letters to it. I just have to form the word. Yeah, so it's, it's the ability to have force multipliers that will support you in your mission, your job, your function, and then the ability to make a percentage of each of those individuals and I had come from an environment that was team-based. Yeah. So, you know, on Madonna, I learned that <laughs> teams can hurt you if you're not in them. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to be in that situation again, so started developing the team, and, and uh, it, it's grown ever since. And I, I think so, so, that was the last time we got hired because of the fighting component. Yeah. And that was 20-plus years ago. So, you, so you, you're, you're, uh, you're hired by this uh, rock star who... You know, says I'll trust you. I'm giving you this responsibility. You have to form a team. You know, I again, I'm asking you questions as somebody that wants to get into this industry or somebody that might you know be interested in this. Um, you are forming your team. What are you looking for? Are you looking for people that you know that you trust? Are you looking for dudes that uh, have fighting skills? Hey, look at my look at my black belt. Uh, Hey, look at all these uh, all the courses that I have. Like, what are you looking for yeah. in an individual? It, and that's a great question because inevitably you want people that you like or that you respect or that have certain skills. But I needed something different. So, personality was the biggest factor. If they could adapt with their personality type and learn the stuff and then apply it, a doer, a worker. Um, that was who I was after, and that's who I ended up finding. And certainly, I, I found jujitsu guys, but that was just a, a byproduct down the road. Um, in fact, the client actually just, in, in hindsight, trained so much that he opened up his own jujitsu school. So, Rockstar with jujitsu school. But in in terms of developing our team, um, most of the guys are not jujitsu guys.
they end up um, training jujitsu because they're motivated by what they see. But yeah, they're they're guys who are flexible, and and I found if guys it, that have an extensive background, they bring a lot of trash and trauma with them. Yeah, and so guys who have a limited amount of experience, enough to be tested, who are motivated, who are dedicated, who maybe don't have a lot of family baggage. Um, those are our best guys. Those yeah. are the guys that stay the longest. Those are the guys that do the best job. Not some high-speed operator, not some pro fighter. Uh, most underappreciated skills as somebody working in this industry. What are, what are some of those that people just don't you know, focus on? Going back to, to what I mentioned earlier, which is one, being super flexible, being yeah. to adjust on the fly. Um, people skills. People skills. Two is the ability to quickly develop personality profiles on the people in the room and then be able to acclimate to that, right? Yeah. So, so not to adopt the uh, protective uh, yellow or red on every single room you step into with this client. Yeah, so the understanding, you know, what your end objective is and not being so fixated on the structure or format it takes to get there. So being able to be flexible in how you do stuff or how you see stuff and how you present stuff uh, relative to the environment, uh, most of the time things don't unfold the way you're trained, almost yeah. never. Yeah. And even when we're training guys today, we deal, deal with some of the formalities. We have to show them the protocol, but then say, hey, you know, this is 10% of the time. This is a formal environment. Most of the time it's going to be in the gray space. So guys that are really good at, at picking up cues, whether it's visual cues or auditory cues, or however they function, and then adapting to it, that's by far the most important aspect. How did you learn game. this? How did you learn this? Like, did you go to a training I, program? No, I mean, I, 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 the amount you, of training that I've work done in the fast. service industry for a bit. And no, I think I think that there's part of it that is innate. It's in your DNA. It's in your makeup. So, you, your so predisposition. Some, pe some people are just predisposed to this. It doesn't matter how much I train or how much I yeah. do. Some some people just don't work out for this. That's a pretty honest uh, thing uh, to uh, say. Fact. That's a fact. And then the other side is just being open enough to take something new in and then to try to physically adapt yourself to that. Uh, and, and obviously before you can adapt physically, you have to have the mental component there. So uh, you see a lot of guys, they function great in austere conditions, but then you get in this room and it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, because the rules are different, right? So you can't apply the same rules in every space. It doesn't work that way. It's not cookie cutter. And even within the industry, you know, the norms between pop or between rock or hip hop, they change. Yeah. Uh, country, completely different animal. So it, when I'm looking for guys and what I would tell younger guys is, is to have that level of adaptability, to understand that when you come in at the bottom, it's really important to take in everything, talk less, see more, and, and then really work your ass off. And I think that that will yield the result that almost anybody is looking for, no matter who the group is, what the company is. The, the, um, the visuals of it, like people from the outside looking into this, you know, life's life uh, choice as far as a career path. Uh, you know, the positives, we hear some of the positives as far as how people uh, are learning and traveling and figuring things out. What are some of the negatives of it? You, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a young uh, unwed, probably no kids. Uh, yeah. Those are pretty great. Yeah, you know, basically yes. unattached. Yes, um, I imagine they miss out on a lot. Yeah. So if you think about 
sleeping in your own bed or being around your family or your friends or having your own schedule or being able to jump off the beaten path and go somewhere. You want hey, my favorite um, coffee shop is in Lisbon and I'm in Lisbon, I can't go to my favorite coffee shop or I'm in this city where my best friend lives and I can't go see my best friend. So you are living somebody else's life. Whatever they like to do, whenever they like to do it, however they like to do it is exactly what will happen with you. So uh, if you have a client who does shit that you hate, that's going to be your life. That's going to be your life. And and if they do things that uh, you're repulsed by, that's going to be your life. These These are some of the negative aspects. Well, these are some of the, the costs to this. Life. It is a cost. And I, and I think in, in a lot of cases it's negative. And, and typically the good outweighs the bad in that you're traveling around the world, you're getting paid to travel around the world, you're staying in five-star hotels, and you know, you're not digging ditches, right? And, and you know, threat level relative to being you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan is extremely low, but exist. So when you look at it, the cost normally is a reflection of, done by somebody that's been on the job a while they start to really understand and look at it like, okay i'm giving up x to get y yeah. so you think you're making good pay but if you look at it in terms of hourly wage <laughs> yeah if you're right. working 16 to 20 hours a day six days a week you're not really getting paid that well it yeah. seems like oh yeah i'm getting paid you know six figures to do this and I'm like, but hourly you're not yeah you know that's 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 interesting to kind of look at um you start forming your team uh, do you start forming a curriculum? Do you start forming um, uh, a way to create that team? Do you start uh, figuring out pe- what do I need to, these people to be proficient at training wise? What and yes. is, is that uh, you know? I, I know you had your, your life experience and your training and some of that in the background, but like I could do this better. It's basically what I imagine. You clicked in your head. Yeah. So the Mark One motto, the the average guy in the business is not trained, does not come from the military law force, does not come from true protective service operations background. They're big and their qualifications being big. And that's that's industry norm. So my thought very, very soon, like maybe within two years, is like start the business, bring the guys in, make sure that they have the right foundation and then train them, teach them, show them, and then have them developing guys, right? So we started um, with a training group called Celebrity Protection Academy, and we started training guys right away. And so we're going into different markets, and we're dealing with locals. So you have contract security guys like a CSC or something like that who do event, and they're hourly wage guys who have almost no training. Uh, but there are guys that are motivated, that are hungry. And if you go through a hundred of them, you might find one or two that are, are capable Viable. of doing the job. And you keep that relationship and then you open up the training to them. And then what happens is when you have a, a, a training group, let's say I have 20 guys come to this training. They're paying to go to the training, but they're paying us to basically audit them, to look at them and do a selection assessment, right? So yeah. I'm assessing them and selecting them based on their performance. And so even in the training, even if some of it is similar to other trainings, we'll throw them curveballs. Like, okay, you got an hour for lunch and then five minutes into it. Nope, we're moving. And as these things happen, you get to see a little bit of their personality. Okay. Then, you know, let's say we've been working them 20 hours. All of a sudden the fights start breaking out and it's always the same guy who's at the center of it. Like that guy's no good for yeah. this job because he's going to have to work 20 hour days. Um, so his personality or temperament's not right. You'll, you'll just get to see guys who are heroes in one aspect are zeros in another aspect 
because this guy is tough and all that, but he can't handle these social skills. Or this guy's got the social skills, but as soon as it gets physical, this guy breaks. Um, so it was an opportunity for us to see that. So we we could charge, we could wash guys out, and we could handpick who we'd want to use. Selection. It's a it's a selection process. It is a selection process, and it and it works out well because we get to see them in a lot of different conditions, right? So we create the conditions, we train them on the things we want to train them on, and so. You know, there are, are processes for the admin side, right, for the advancing and the logistics components. And then there are the stress inoculation components where it, it's very revealing, yeah. very, very revealing. Uh, yeah. Uh, having somebody walk up to you, spit in your face and swallowing that shit and having to just go about your job because you're not there to monkey dance with anybody. And I imagine a few people there will react. Yeah. You're... you're on your 20th, six, you six, probably, we'll say six, six day of 20 hours of work, right? You're outside, you haven't eaten that day. You know, it's, it's 35 degrees outside. It's raining now, uh, almost snowing, and you deal with the shit. And it's just things pile up, right? The, the pressure. So you go from being, uh, being ground level, figuring things out as you go, wishing that you had some sort of manual or some sort of a specific instruction for working in this weird realm of entertainment, security, international travel, figuring things out, working with emotions, um, selecting people that are optimal for this type of uh, weird dimensional work. You go from that, figuring out for yourself, I, I assume you were taking notes along the way. Uh, I... I took notes and I wrote a book, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so literally. were you, uh, w while you're going through this process of gaining that experience, which is something that um, I, when I was going through my experiences, I would always keep notebooks. You know, that's a, uh, there's a, the name of my social medias is usually Ed's Manifesto and the manifesto aspect of it was usually a notebook that I would keep writing in basically. Um, were you avidly taking specific notes and figuring things out as far as later on? I'm going to work on this book. I documented everything. One is it's a CYA mechanism. Yeah. And then on top of that, I went back in the notes and figured out all the stuff that I didn't know that a guy at the lowest level coming in would need to know and then produced a book called All Access, The Secrets of Tour Security. And they're, they're not secrets, yeah. but they're things that I didn't know that if another guy was coming in that he would need to know because there was no book, there was no manual. Yeah. And, and so that was the result. The, 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 aspect of the, the aspect of having a structured, hey, this is how things work, or at least these are, this is how things worked for me in this experience, and they might help you out in yours. Yeah, but a basic in-brief because there was no in-brief. There yeah. was nothing. There was there a was, talk. There was a talk. It was a short conversation. And here you go. Yeah, you think about it. Normally with the job, you're like, here's the scope of your job. Here are your duties. Here's this how you're going to do it. job description. Here's, Somebody handing no, off responsibilities to you? None of that. Nothing. Non-disclosure agreement, non-compete agreement, and that was it. You're off. Good luck. <laughs> okay. Here I go. Okay. And, and this, this, uh, this led to you putting everything into a document. A Which book. might be one back there, the thinner one. It says all access and it's got a laminate on it. That one was the first one. And that book's like 13 or 14 years old now. It's, a, it's got a white cover and it's got uh, like an outline of a laminate. Uh, thin one, there it is. So that guy came literally out of 
taking those voracious notes, like just nonstop note-taking and information. And again, when you're taking these notes, this is, is your main objective, I'm going to figure out how to turn this into a book, or you're like, this is probably stuff that I should keep somewhere so I know it and I have to reference it back. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was with the understanding that there are people that don't know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the intention was not a book. The book came because... Literally, I would have guys asking me, hey, I see you're doing it this way. How did you learn that? Or what? And it was trial and error. Like yeah. The vast majority of stuff that we're doing is based on trial and error. And so I put some of that together, how to look at situations, how to deal with it. And this book, like I said, I mean, that, that's 13 or 14 years old. It's not even around anymore. Yeah. This, this, uh, this all access, did, did this... Uh, in Mexico, we have this saying, uh, you know... Uh, do a good deed and, and, and watch the snakes come out of the grass. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, yes, so, yes. Um, yeah. So even the name alone, like, oh, you're telling secrets, you shouldn't be telling people our secrets. Like, was it, was it there a little bit of a Absolutely. controversy? Yeah, so like, you, you have plenty of guys who are like, well, I, I can't believe you put that out, I can't believe you did. It's like, I can't believe what, I did what? You know, what, 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 the, uh, what were the worries that you are now becoming a voice in an industry where supposedly you're not supposed to be... Yeah. Where silence is golden, basically. Yeah, I mean, when you look at any of the publications that I've done, none of them are tell-all stories. None of them talk about the artist. None of them, literally. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's more of a voice in general because it's a small space, and if somebody develops a voice in that small space, they're going to get more business. And if they get more business, they're taking it from someone else. And so it's it's a protective territorial response to what it is that that person's doing. Yeah. This, uh, this I mean, again, the currency of trust and the currency of discreteness and all that, and all of a sudden you, you have this book that talks about none of that, but specifically how to basically go about the job, specific around yeah. the job. I mean, you get in the book, and there's a timeline. Like, what what am I doing? I, I have to do venue security. What are the things I need to be worried about? It's it's not just hand somebody a pass sheet with the credentials on it and you're done. There are a lot more things, and so getting a timeline of how you should use your 20-hour day, uh, you know, how to do assessments, how to apply certain aspects of it, you know, what certain standards need to be. That wasn't written. That didn't exist. And so putting that in place at least is a good starting point. You know, is, is it archaic? Maybe. I mean, it's 13 or 14 years old, but it still gives a person who's never had any experience good some understanding of how it all works. And when you say it's archaic, you know, that's usually we're the biggest critics of our own work, right? And specifically yeah, when time yeah. goes by, you're like, yeah. yeah, because you grow and you know what yeah, your growth yeah. is and you know the vision you had before and how it kind of evolves yeah. with times. But I mean, even uh, in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of technology, think about the yeah. difference. To, to, the people having to lock their cell phones when they go into a concert, COVID restrictions, um, Mass shooting events in public in concert venues, and what what does that mean as far as your job? Absolutely, your your critical incident protocols completely change. Your personal security uh, postures will change based on what the iPhone is doing. When the iPhone didn't exist, you know, information was a lot easier to so, kind of. Keep. So th these are these are interesting questions. So smartphones. We'll start there. Like smartphones and the ability to record anything, anywhere, everywhere. Um, and the job that you do and the job that you train other people to do, what, the, what, what, what changes there? Technology-wise, countermeasures? Uh, everything. The, the biggest problem that we face comes from the inside, not from the outside. Everybody's a potential camera. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody has, actively has a, a recording device. So whether it's audio recording, right, whether it's the video recording, 
uh, you know, everything 24-7 is being recorded. And so when I'm having a private conversation with an artist or an artist wants to have a private conversation with a manager or agent or someone else, our job is to brief them, to take control of those things. If you think about going into an embassy, what's the first thing they're going to collect, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you need that to be out of the way. And also, if you're tracking where I'm going and what I'm doing, my location, this is the easiest way to do it. Yeah. And you have no idea it's happening. So, so ha- having basically a basic understanding of information, signal security, cell phone security, and just things that were normally relegated in the realm of... You know, this is a very specialized thing. But now you have to be educated on, you know. At a a minimum, right? At a minimum. Understanding how that works, right? How does your SIM card work? How does your phone's individual ID work, right? And then in that Cell phone towers, repeaters, how does that work? How they they track? Let's reverse it. What happens when you do have a critical incident and your radios aren't functioning and you your plan is to go to your cell phone and your cell phone, the, the towers are not functioning because they're overloaded. Now what, right? So, for example, we use MeshNet apps, right? So it's talking Bluetooth. But then I'm in concrete. So the distance, instead of being 100 meters, might be 20 meters. So, you know, understanding the capabilities, how it can work for you, how it can work against you. Um, you know, how to, think about how. encryption. Think about uh, things like, you know, different networks that you can connect to. How do you filter stuff uh, that's going out? How do you filter the, stuff that's coming in? The educator aspect of you as a as a service provider and your your uh, protectee or your client saying, "Hey, what's a recommendation for a secure cell phone?" And it can't be like, "I don't know. Let me check." You have to have answers. That's yeah. That's if, part of like an assumption of how things are now. Yeah, I think if 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 they're aware, if they're cognizant of what is happening around them, it makes sense. Uh, if they have the mindset, of, well, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not worried about it. That's a problem. Um, the support network around artists are, are predominantly yes men, and because of that, you know, you have a lot of potential eyes and ears that information can go out with, and the whole time they're smiling and shaking their head yes. And that's your source, right? They're giving away locations. They're giving away activities. They're giving away, you know, uh, people's personal opinions and, and their viewpoints on things. All of that information that goes out then in turn is utilized by a third party to manipulate the situation on the inside from the outside. Yeah. But the leaks for us almost inevitably are coming from the inside. Inside. Uh, that's a different dimension to it. Again, speaking of archaic and how mm-hmm. things change and evolve. Uh, then you go into the Vegas shooting. And I don't know, I mean, as somebody from the outside looking in that event and how it transpired and did it change uh, things uh, when it comes to like concerts in the United States or is it is it was it just in a random event and it happened and did well, anything change with that? Yeah, that's my question. I think a, a couple of things and Vegas is just one of them, the Route 91 festival, but um, I think awareness went up and where that's valuable for us in, in our line of work is that the artist now goes, oh shit, it could be me. Um, the Manchester incident with Ariana Grande in the arena, that, that bombing, oh shit, it could be me. Um, you know, we had uh, an artist overseas who's staunchly anti-gun and we're doing shows in Belgium. And at the time, the people were working out of this specific neighborhood, going in to France and doing these things and then coming back. 
And I had briefed them on it, and they're like, eh, you know, we don't want a high-profile guy around here. We don't want, uh, you know, long guns around. We don't want all this stuff. We're not pro-gun, so we don't want to have that in our presence. Okay, so I did it anyway, and uh, ultimately what ended up happening is multiple bombings, uh, gunfights in the street, and the same artist who told me they didn't want guns around them now asking me to put machine guns in the pit, in the barricade, and... and you know, saying, hold on a second. You know, we, we we can't use those type of weapons in a concert in a, in a, in a large environment. Like yeah, it doesn't work that way. So the perspective shifted and the awareness of, oh, shit, it could be me too. Now my opinion changes like, well, that's what we need to protect ourselves. Therefore, it's okay. So that was the biggest shift. So RTTPs with respect to how we did stuff, our critical incident protocols, how we used bike racks for gurneys or how we placed trauma kits or had certain um, like uh, strobe lights for uh, you know emergency protocols, all that stuff remained the same. We just got more buy-in from the client. Yeah, there, was, there was more of a value placed on it. Like, the, oh, this is why. So what that means then is that you get the financial support and backing. So now we can put these things in place without trying to rob the money from some other place. It gets its own line item and then training on that, they get buy-in. So they'll take a briefing on a regular basis regarding it and, and they've got more time for it because yeah. it can affect them directly. Yeah. So that's, that's the big shift was awareness. Yeah. And then, and, and uh, you know, this, you, you, you talk about firearms and uh, mm. rifles and, this, this uh, inclusion of them in, in the security apparatus of entertainment, which is, you know, it's it's a strange it's a, it's it's a, it's a strange environment for those things to be present. And um, the training around that, I mean, is there, you know, again, the, your, your whole aspect of how you select and kind of form people, you know, um, I I encountered the problem of having ex-military individuals coming into a protective circle around a politician, for example, where their main solution was. Now, now yeah, how, how do if you? If you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? Yeah, like, how do you? Uh, and also, it's a uh, you know if you were, if you're in a reactive type uh, mindset, and how do you, you know, when it comes to firearms and and, and their place within the industry. You know what? Uh, what specifically changes around it as far as the training and the uh, exposure to them and how people work around with firearms, basically, in in in, in this industry. Yeah, I mean, in in, in our industry, I think that uh, pistols have have been you know the common thing that you see because of concealability, right? But everyone knows that knows anything about firearms is you know, that's, that's inferior to a rifle. Yeah. You know, the reason that we don't use rifles is because they're so overt. They're you know. That's, that's that. But um, now they understand in certain places we need a higher signature, a higher profile. And it's not the big, bald guy who's 6'8 and 300 pounds. That's not it. We need a trained element with assets or tools that can solve the problem. Because when the adversary presents this specific problem, there's only one solution. And it's, it's not to just scream and yell uh, you know, in, in our job, as you know, is to evacuate. It's to take them yeah. out. It's to remove them. It's not to have the fight. You know, our, our first our first opportunity to remove ourselves from the situation, that's the plan. Yeah. Second to that, right, we're trying to move, and then last is is barricading in place, and then when that fails, the then, then it's the fight, right? So they are starting to understand that, starting to accept that. They're seeing us train, they're seeing us do things, and now we're starting to finally have management groups ask, hey, do you have a plan for this? So you know, since the inception of, of tour security in the 60s, 
nobody cared. They just, they didn't even know what the job was that they were hiring them for. Uh, they thought it was just a physical presence, right? This big guy. Finally, in the last few years, have they started to ask, like, do you have a plan? What's your plan for X? What's your plan for Y? What's your plan for Z? And those are the best conversations in my 25 years, the best conversations I've ever had. Yeah. Figuring out solutions and figuring out evolving solutions. Well, including management groups or agents or artists themselves into these protocols and giving them daily briefings and giving them, you know, a critical incident plan that shows them where the trauma one hospital is, where the embassy is, where a safe haven is, where a stash car is. When I can dial them into that, they can see the value of what we're doing in an emergency scenario. And they feel a little bit more comfortable and they also don't feel like they need to manipulate it. They understand it just enough and they have just enough confidence that they let you do your job. And, yeah. and that's massive for us. The, the world changed with COVID. Um, from your perspective, like being in this industry where people are out and there's crowds and you know, that's the art, you know? Uh, what was your view of it when it started? Like, what was your what was your initial thoughts of it? Everything just shutting down. Well, I think I was probably like everybody. You don't know what you have, right? Because there's no time. It just boom, it's yeah. off. And there was a ton of of bad information that went out, and whether it was malicious or not, I don't know. Um, so we had to shut down. Uh, we started seeing it happen. Uh, I was. Uh, on a jet in Australia with a client, just the two of us, and he ended up getting sick and couldn't smell wine one night at dinner. And that was like, okay, we, we know what this is after the fact. So I got it and it wasn't that bad. Um, and it wasn't bad for him that time. And about a month later, we were back in the States and everything started shutting down. So it's like the second week of March. Uh, and so I wasn't sure. Uh, and then as I watched it, I had less and less confidence in the information that was coming out because it was conflicting with what I had witnessed and what I had experienced. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, they shut us down for close to 18 months. And that meant all the tours that we had out, all the films on location dried up. Nothing. Yeah. Everybody packed it up and went home. And a holding yeah. pattern. It, an, it, unknown, an unknown time limit to this holding pattern. Now you have to stop yeah. everything and maintain. People. Yeah, 85% of the business, done. That's it. And then with the governmental stuff, you know, uh, the trainings that we had going on, they froze that. Yeah. And then, you know, they started implementing different stuff. And with DT or with defensive tactics training, you're going to be up close and personal. You're going to be breathing on them. You're going to yeah. be sweating on them. You're going to be bleeding on them. So, you know, it's not a classroom thing with this social distancing, right? You can't do that. That doesn't, that doesn't work in those realms. So that became a lot of conversations, a lot of documentation. And it seemed like to me, a really big part of it was people were scared and they didn't know what they had and they were worried about the liability of, of what they the chose. Li the liability aspect of it. And, uh, you know, this, this kind of leads me into reopening and reopening after COVID and, you know, people trying to keep everybody safe, um, people moving around, like you say, basically, you know, the security gypsies <laughs> and uh, not being far away from medical management or not having people there that can figure things out for you and be getting sick on the road, that type of aspect of it. That's scary. You know, that's, a, that's an unknown and scary thing for some people. I, I think going back into this uh, yeah, post-COVID thing. The group of people that we work with um, tend to be people who overestimate the risk of certain 
dangers like physical violence and underestimate dangers in, in other realms, right? Like drugs or alcohol. Uh, yeah, or, you know, sex with a hooker or whatever it may be. Um, so it's, it's a, a really weird relationship there in understanding how they assess risk and then how they apply that assessment. So when we came back, they did the, uh, you know, six foot distancing thing. So they started moving the crowd around and spacing chairs out and they started doing that within the group. They mandated masks and several of the artists that we worked with immediately implemented a mandatory PCR test daily for all of the crew members. So, so for people that don't know what that is, so you describe the so, PCR test. Uh, they're going to take a long swab and stick it up your nose and spin it around on both nostrils, and then they're going to put it in the machine and cook that, and it'll come back either negative or positive. And in some cases, kind of Every know, weird interpretation of kind of middle ground. But for the most part we were mandated to be tested every day by either a nurse or someone that was trained up, a COVID compliance officer is what they called them, who is not a medical expert of any sort. Uh, and they would do that. Now, not only did that take you know, time out of our day um, to, to actually do that, but what would happen is they would start to ostracize people if they didn't follow very strict, stringent protocols. And again, this was based on concern with liability and predominantly the concern was getting the artist uh, preventing the artist from getting COVID because if you got COVID, then yeah. you know, the ship sinks. So um, the other side, and I think people don't think about this too much, is to put those types of protocols in place. Uh, we're talking about millions of dollars over the course of a six-month leg. It's expensive. Crazy Shit. expensive. And then you have doctors on retainer who are you know, inferring certain things or in certain groups uh, that, that are trying to stay up to date on COVID and this variant and that variant and and, you know, we had people, uh, the full spectrum, people who are like, this is a joke, to people who were just so scared they just locked themselves in a room and yeah. they stopped living. So, um, but I would say as a broad stroke, the entertainment side, it was hyper-fearful. Yeah. Even I mean, when they had data that would lead them to believe something else, they wouldn't accept it. So yeah. initially liability, and then after that, I think it was just enjoying some type of collective thing where we both commiserate and do this thing together, and you're part of this special club that wears the mask even when they're not mandatory. Yeah. It was an interesting time. That was an interesting time for humanity as a whole, and we're still in it in a way, I guess, the post-COVID thing where that's like a, like a part of thing. Uh, is it part of current uh, event Security, like the COVID protocols are still like a thing that people talk about? or it, For some it is. In a lot of cases, it's, it's related to political ideology because it, at least in the States, uh, it's divided on the political line, which, um, you know, in almost 50 years that I've been around, uh, you know, I've never seen something that's science-related be divided left and right on the political spectrum. And this is, this is that. And so people, some people want to demonstrate, you know, what their, their ideological beliefs are and, Vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, mask versus non-mask, um, hand al alcohol sanitizer for your hands every time you touch somebody. Don't touch somebody. Fist bump. Yeah, and there's there's some things that are not congruent there because if I'm backstage wearing a mask, and then when I go out in the crowd, it's not mandatory, and I can take it off and <laughs> be exposed to twenty thousand people screaming and yelling, where the person on the stage doesn't need to wear it and the person in the front row is six feet from them screaming the lyrics to the song, if you're really concerned about that... It's, maybe, it's just nonsensical, completely nonsensical. 
It, it, a lot of things were not congruent with the protocols that were taken and then the realities of that particular situation. Yeah, and the and liability aspect of it is from your, also the workers. But, you know. but in reality, show me the case law or show me the cases where uh, liability cases have been uh, somebody successful. Getting the, somebody getting the flu at work and dying and then well, suing the company because he got the flu. But there is none. So if you look at concerts, there is, there is nothing. Yeah, there's nothing. So show me where somebody got the flu at a concert or got a cold or did something and they were successful at suing that artist or the promoter or the building or the security. That was a looming fear. That was a looming fear. Well, it drove certain actions and behaviors. You know, I mean, the, the psychological implications, they're vast. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we could spend years talking about just that one yeah. component of it. Yeah, and then the generation that grew up around it, you know, <laughs> and how they're, you know, changed. Yeah, it's it's interesting that some people never questioned it for a second. It's yeah. just accepted and understood, and they fall in line. And I think from my side, um, I was shocked to see people who are theoretically anti-authority, anti-establishment, getting in line, marching and screaming and chanting. Put on your mask. Yeah, it's it's like wait a second. It, you were on a stage saying question authority and think for yourself, and now you're screaming this government mantra. That's, that's very odd. I mean, just aside from any of my own beliefs, just trying to think about like how they came to that conclusion, that, that was quite challenging. You, uh, I mean, we, 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 we've, you just went from uh, you know, 9-11 to COVID. Like you've, you've done a lot of <laughs> once-in-a-lifetime uh, uh, events in our lives. Like we've, we've went... We've been through a lot as a as a society. You uh, and all, all the while again keeping notes on this. What are your main notes uh, as far as uh, security and venue security and basic artist security and these types of international events? What are your main notes on COVID, uh, not a pandemic? Uh, <laughs> that's that's definitely touching in in some gray space for me because it's so driven by the clients political perspective and, and ideology, but um, when we looked at it from uh, a theoretical perspective and the manipulations we needed to take, at the end of the day, we wouldn't do everything that was fully necessary if we were going to lose money or it was going to limit the income to a certain point, right? So, and I'll give you an example. In the U.S. in particular, and this is pretty much around the world, but let's say you have an arena floor and they take the square footage of that floor and they figure out how many people can go on that floor based on the fire marshal limit, how many people per square feet or meters, depending on where you're at. Um, and so let's say they come up with that number is X. Um, if we have to do X minus 500 because of COVID, all of a sudden now we're starting to get into their margin and it's like, it's not worth doing it. So what I found to be consistent, most things were inconsistent and incongruent, but the one thing that was consistent was if we could still make a good percentage on this, we were still going to do it. Yeah. So money driving decisions in the end, that, that was my main takeaway from this. So as, a, as, a, as somebody that, whose opinion on this should be trusted in this, this setting, being able to figure out the cost of safety when it comes to you know, COVID, if that could be basically quantified to the client, it would change the outcome probably as far as your work. Dollars and cents. Yeah. Dollars I, and I, you cents. Know, I'll see how serious you are about this when I see your response to this 
spreadsheet with the numbers on it, right? Yeah. Um, this, uh, now, you, you're, you're, you're a public figure now, which is, again, strange in a job where you're kind of like in the background, you know, public figure as far as uh, somebody that people look for, as far as information, as far as uh, you figure things out. Um, does that change anything as far as your uh, specific uh, job when people know a lot about you before they meet you, basically, if, if they do their homework? Um, you know, seemingly it would change things. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think it has because in my realm, I'm not really a public figure. I'm known in the circles that yeah, are interested in the subject. So if they're yeah. interested in protective service operations, they probably know me. If yeah. they're interested in martial arts, they probably know me. But outside of that, I'm completely unknown, yeah. variable or entity. And, and as we talked about earlier with the publications that I've released and the podcasts I've done, I've not talked about stuff that's sensitive in a, in a way that will come back and, and hurt yeah. us or harm us. So yeah. everything's been safeguarded and compartmentalized. So I don't think it changes a lot. I, I was a target before because of my relationship to artists. Uh, again, you know, I don't have anything to take, but uh, the artists do. So they would utilize me as an, an agent acting on behalf of the artists to, to, to sue them civilly and get some money. But uh, I, I don't think it changes too much. Um, if it changes anything, it just uh, it gives a voice to a subject that didn't have a voice before. And um, which leads me to kind of talk about this guy. Um, this is an interesting, like it says, peek behind the curtain. But it's... It's not behind the curtains, like in front of the stage, around the stage, <laughs> details outside of the loading yeah. docks uh, at a concert venue. Just um, what you see going out and working. Is that kind of like a... Yeah, so this book, uh, Protective Perspective, um, follows another book that was very systems-based, very processes and, and ways of thinking and how we apply it. This book was really driven by the visual component. So I had talked to the artist uh, from this particular group and said, hey, I'd like to take some pictures as we go along related to security components, if that's okay with you. And he said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to. He happens to be interested in the subject matter. Yeah. So I'd stop and say, I need 30 seconds to graduate that, take some photos. And so this book is basically um, structured in a way that the average person who's not interested in security, maybe they're interested in music in general, maybe they're interested in touring, maybe they're interested in photography or uh, travel, this would be interesting to them. But what I try to do is have a photo or an image and then some type of summary thought regarding that on the page next to it. So this so, goes kind of the full gamut of, of daily operations on a tour. So uh, blowout kits, casualty response kits, and talking a little bit of what's in there. Um, actually being on stage or being uh, beside the stage and, um, you know, talking about positioning. You know, it's, it's basically an interesting little window into you, what you're looking at and basically explaining what's happening as, as you do. So for anybody that has, a, I don't know, like travelers, people that are just people that are concert goers. You know, if I'm a concert goer and I'm, you know, I always tell people, if you go somewhere, it's probably a good idea to know what the janitor's job is. Absolutely. Probably a good idea what the admin guy's job is. Why? Awareness. Just better awareness about what's going on around you. Yeah, you're making informed decisions. Your, your understanding of the world becomes better. Um, that's interesting 
did you get any questions by the people, like the artists, like what are you guys doing as far as no. taking pictures around here? Or? No, I was I was very discreet and I was very short. I mean, any of these shots were taken within a few seconds um, on an iPhone, and you know they supported what I do, and, and it happens to be another person that's interested in three or four areas. So, you know, this person was in the military, they do jujitsu, they, they like a lot of the same realm. So we have an understanding, and, and I don't give away anything on their background, but there are, are components in there that would give you a, a, a true peek behind the curtain, because a lot of stuff is, is uh, never seen, right? A, a physical walkthrough of a venue, hotel, like, uh, let's say, uh, for people listening to this who don't want to go into this industry, but you they want to do a physical walkthrough someplace, physical walkthrough of a hotel lobby up into the room. What are you looking for? So just to preface this, we do a written advance with the hotel, yeah. telling them what our expectations are and getting information of the structures uh, that they have there and then their capabilities in terms of, of human assets. Um, and then when we're doing a walkthrough, we're looking at potential weaknesses or points of potential failure in, in our movements. So as we come in, we're first looking at how can we bring them? What are our options? So if we come through the front door, what problems does that present? If we come through the loading dock, if we come through a subterranean entrance, we're trying to figure out what our options are there. And then as we come in, how do we limit our exposure, our signature? that we're even there. We're looking at elevators, right? We're looking at how many people can fit in, can they lock it down to just that location, hold it there, and then it can do what's called independent motion, move straight up to whatever floor we're going to so it doesn't stop on floors along the way. Can we go through service areas? How clean are those service areas? Do they have cameras? Are the cameras IP-based or the cameras hardwired? Who has access to the cameras in the control room? How long do they store the data for? So it just it gets into you know, an average hotel walkthrough is three or four hours yeah. for our guys. So we're collecting all the information uh, to figure out who the decision makers are, what the capabilities are, you know, what the options are for us. Um, you know, just to, to talk about the cameras alone, knowing how long they store that data is important. And it's not because I'm worried about the maid going in and stealing something out of the room. It can be because my client is going to get drunk and then I know he's got girls coming and going and I want to safeguard his image from that. It can be a plethora of things. So, you know, knowing how it works, how it functions, who has access, uh, you know, how it's set up. For example, if it's IP and wireless, you know, who can actually extract that information versus something that's hardline and it's, and it's going to a hard drive. Yeah. Um, really critical things for famous people. For, for and, and if you're not famous, you are, it's just you with somebody going to a hotel, doing this walkthrough. This, this, this is also something that you can basically kind of infuse yeah. into your... People have this weird sense that they're secure in a hotel room and every person working in the hotel has access to that room. And when we're in foreign countries in particular, you know, if a person's using a concierge, then that person knows where you're going and what you're doing and how you're doing it. Security knows when you're coming and going. Front desk managers know. You know, it, everybody's getting a piece of the pie. And in foreign countries, the value of that information, right, is high. And, you know, giving that away for a couple bucks here and there or a few pesos here and there, that's critical yeah. to the, the structure of the safety around that person. You, you talk about uh, entries, access, exits, uh, where your profile's less high. Something easily applicable to anybody, basically, as well. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. E even you think about stairwells, right? 
let's say going out, they have a crash bar and that door works. But some places you go to, they have a, let's say a, a key card control on the elevator, but the stairwell is unsecured. So that's completely useless. And knowing that and understanding that and how to move around is, is a serious thing, at least in our realm. Yeah. Um, privacy, uh, technology, all of these things are like a multifaceted thing. Um, you talk about elevators, fire code, building code, all of these things kind of basically pour into, you know, this existing knowledge base that you have to, if you don't have it, you have to get it or else you're not going to make it, basically. Yeah, I agree. It, it, you will develop along the way, and if you don't, you'll go away. You know, you'll become irrelevant, and you're done. Can you change your tire? <laughs> can right? you? Yeah. Can, can you drive stick? Well, all of these these questions will pop up in, in, in an event somewhere, and these are weird questions that you need to ask yourself now. If if I gave you the pictures from my last trip down here, which yeah. was not very long ago, doing a, a quick walkthrough with the driver in the vehicle, I had bald tires on an up-armored level 5 vehicle. Uh, yeah. So now I've got this box to protect them, but I can't move. I'm going to sit on the X because anything's going to puncture this tire. Yeah. It's... Is you know, it, uh, did it have run flats it on it? It didn't have run flats either, so which is another not, thing. That's not the excuse then. Because usually you'll have uh, bald tires because people don't know how to change them with the run flats on in some, some places because the, they're not educated. The on problem them. was fixed in 20 minutes, but at the end of the day, they're pumping out what was available in that moment because they needed that money to keep coming in. And the company is a good company, but they needed to make money. They need to pay their guys. They need to move cars. And they understood it was a big client, but they didn't think someone would check. Yeah. Someone would see that. I mean, even PSI, you know, I, I've got four different PSIs on four different tires. Um, even with run flats, you start to see inconsistencies uh, because no one's checking, no one's looking. You know, what else do they have in the car? Uh, let's say I have a political client um, who's involved in things, and then they've got a newspaper from some rival faction or group that will set the artist off or the political person off you know, removing that from the car. Yeah. Or the driver's got wrappers all over. The driver doesn't uh, wear deodorant. They, they smell like BO or whatever it may be. Doing these little short advances, you know, prevent maybe with some people certain tailspins that will set them off. And people, yeah, people don't realize how something as small as the driver doesn't use body deodorant. And now you have a client in the back who's really upset about that. And that's going to be effective performance. That's going to affect the, everything. Yeah, if, if, if they are emotional and they're moved by certain things, maybe they had a traumatic experience and the person they had it with smelled a certain way and they have a very keen sense of smell that, that has developed with them over the years, that's massive. Yeah. It, you can send them down the hole super quick. If somebody wants to you know, go into this realm, you know, this, this, uh, this travel security, a lot of time put into it, uh, What's your advice? What's the first step? If they want to go into this realm, I would get formal training relative to executive protection or any type of protective security operations. And then I would find somebody that is a subject matter expert in it. And if it's in this realm within music or film or whatever it is, and then ask to be an assistant or ask to come in and, and work with them for free for a period of time. Um, and they'll, they'll find somebody that will allow them to come in and ask to support on a local level. Um, hey, when you come to town, I'd like to support you post-training, right? So they get their training, they get their experience through working for free for somebody for 
weeks or months or maybe it's, maybe it's a day, yeah. uh, depending on, on what the need is. And that person will default back to them and they'll bring them in. So for us, we have the training. And then normally how we move is with OJT. So we'll have a guy who gets trained up and then in his realm where he knows the area, it can be a foreign country, it can be a city. When we get to that space, we'll utilize him a couple times where he doesn't get paid. And then we'll bring him in for a short exposure. It's like we're doing a, a private event and it's only going to be two or three days. We bring him in and pay them to see how they work with the group. And so it's, it's incremental. And slowly they get the exposure and slowly we can see if it's worth more time or more investment. And then once they've proven themselves, we bring them on board. What do I need to train? Formal, you know, executive protection. Yeah. So, but like, what auxiliary? Like, what would you recommend? Hey, so dude, read a psychology book. Go to a yeah. Go to a, go 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 do some jujitsu with these guys. Hey, do cardio. What's what's a? Uh, I, I think what's it's, that? What's that list look like? For it's, you? it's long, but here's here's where I would start. I would start with being able to do assessments, right? To be able to come in and do an assessment. Like in the first book that I wrote, we looked at Carver assessments, uh, uh, a governmental model, and you can use that and scale it. You can do something simple as like a SWOT assessment, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Uh, once you get assessments down, personalities, personality profiles, huge. And then start going to airports and trying to figure things out, look at people, watch them walk, look at the bags they carry, look at their mannerisms, start to, to utilize the environments that you can gain access to and figure stuff out. When you come up with an idea of correlations result in whatever it is, go back and test it and see if you can prove that concept. And then get your hard skills, right? Shooting, fighting, driving, communicating. There are tons of schools out there. Just make sure that whoever's running that school does the thing in the real world because right now there are so many schools where the people teaching did it 20 or 30 years ago where they never did it at all they've just been a teacher so yeah. i think it's important to, to have a, that aspect that's an interesting observation is that vehicle wise the technology and vehicle wise you you can do i, I did a drive course i did uh, uh driving courses probably 10 years ago maybe maybe 12 with the uh, armored vehicle and but then you put me inside of a like electric vehicle like what the like this is a new ship that I'm moving around, and what 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 is what does this mean now for my work? Um, you know, know, knowing a little bit about how mechanics change on some of the new modern vehicles and all these weird details it makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, with with that, you have to be able to function in the client's car. Or, or to your point, if you're going to be on a tour bus, knowing how to get that tour bus in gear, knowing how to shift through gears if it, if it it's necessary knowing how to open things and close things and access things. It's, it's part of your job. Yeah. You have a window of opportunity maybe of minutes to yeah. figure it out. With me, when like looking at people, people that didn't want to fail in front of other people are usually bad news. You know, people didn't want to fuck up or people that didn't want to ask questions. You know, another valuable thing one of my mentors told me is there's no stupid questions, just very awkward silences before death. <laughs> there's a, there's this moment where uh, you don't know something and you ask. You know, there's nothing wrong with asking. Um, mentorship, I think, is pretty. Is, is what Huge. you describe. Huge. What you yeah. describe a lot when, when you talk about bringing somebody on for for moments and seeing them, seeing how other people work and seeing the people with experience. It's mentorship. All the key lessons that I've learned in my life, outside of actual experience, are from great mentors. Really good mentors. 
who will show you what they need to show you, the core things, and then let you figure other parts out. And uh, as you and I discussed, you know, there are instructors out there who won't demo something. They're a firearms instructor, they won't demo. They're a DT instructor, they won't demo. Uh, you're going to fuck stuff up. Yeah. And if the students don't get it, so be it. You know, you got to go out there and put it on the line. So I, I agree with, with what you're saying 100%. Uh, this, is, this is for people that want to get into it. Uh, the, the shelf life of somebody... You know, this this another aspect of it that I don't I don't see a lot of people talking about, and I I I want to mention and talk about it because I'm I'm 40, I'm a Mexican 40. You know, um, I had a rough go. Uh, I didn't take care of my body as well as I should have. Uh, developing world medical uh, around me, and I went through some things physically, uh, mm-hmm. banged up. Um, what does that factor in the shelf life? Like, when is it? Uh, is this a long? This is a career path for people. People stay on. Is it something you like? What do you? What's some of your advice as far as longevity in this in this field? I think a lot of people are, are if they're right for the job, they're in kind of a three to five year window on average, and they stay either because they really enjoy it or they understand it, uh, or because they have no other options, and then they just fall apart and. They get pushed out. Um, but in terms of longevity, uh, the biggest thing is not thinking you're the celebrity, you're the rock star. So in terms of spending money, in terms of drinking or anything else you may do, you know, really living a different life as much as you can. Because you're going to be forced into most of the components of their life, but you don't have to make the choices they make. And that's where guys go off the rails most frequently, right? They see that guy spending all this money, they spend all their money. Only they're making a, a fraction, at best case scenario, they're making 1% of what the artist is making. But they're spending like that. Uh, yeah. They're eating like that, they're drinking like that. Um, you know, They're behaving like that in some cases. So uh, if you wanna last in this business, you, know, you find a good pair of shoes that don't jack up your knees or your lower back. You know, you stretch out when you can. When you have downtime, you know, you, you go do jujitsu or yoga. Uh, you drink as much water as possible so long as you can hold your bladder when you're in a post, right, and don't have to run off to the bathroom. But there are a lot of little decisions that lead to the ability to do this long term. And, and the biggest thing I can say, you're not the artist, you're not the celebrity. Don't live like them, don't act like them. You have to live a, a much more um, controlled lifestyle. The... You know, this, this, you know, it's, it's, our bodies are very valuable in this industry. So it's like a finite, re- it's a finite resource. Um, another finite resource, I think, is confidence in your work and discretion and being able to be trusted and the trust aspect of it. Like, what would you, what would you say to somebody coming into this and they're like, I want to be trusted. Like, how can I be trusted? Uh, what do I need to not say? Do I need to not talk about it? Is it treated like the CIA? Uh, not talk about my life? Is this like a, this one of these things? Like, what, what, what some of the advice you would give somebody? Like, Yeah, into this? I, that's huge. Uh, that's massive. And what I would say on that front is to not talk about anybody's business to anyone. Because I know if you're spilling the dirt on somebody to me, that you're going to that same person spilling the dirt back and forth. It, it, if that's your MO, if that's how you operate, you operate that way you're everywhere. Uh, and, and people do that. So if you look at my social media account, and it's about business and stuff. You don't see 
pictures of, of me hanging out with my clients. You don't see pictures of, of you know, where we're at the moment. If I post something that's related to something that we did or where we're at, it's a day or a week or a month or two years later, uh, and you can't use it. Now, some guys are immediately posting up stuff. They're getting in a hotel and they're posting things up. And, and again, the problem comes from the inside. But as you noted, discretion is massive. And, and with respect to getting um, that confidence from a client, if they see that and feel that discretion over time, you're going to get it. One comes with the other. And the only way to do it is over time because you, you can't get a good read on a day or a week or a month. It takes time, yeah. right? you yeah. got to be consistent across time. People want to find out more about your work and your books. Where can they find you? Uh, Tour Protection, T-O-U-R, protection.com is our website. Uh, Instagram, which we just started maybe a year and a half ago, is at Tour Training. Um, I'm going to be sharing a few of the... Uh, a few of these on my Sweet. Instagram account. I appreciate it. It's valuable stuff. Uh, yeah, little, wish, little bits and pieces, right? I wish I had some of this stuff when I was coming up. Uh, when I went into my uh, career as a as an executive protection guy, it was because I was being cooled off because I was working operations. So they say, oh, send him over there. He'll cool off there, which is a mind fuck of a thing to do to somebody, mm. you know, from being reactive to just, you know, making stuff not happen. Yeah, that's one of the things, that's a really good point. Uh, One of the problems with any type of protective work is the result. Um, And I mean, if I do everything perfect, the result is nothing. Nothing. And so it's very hard when you're talking about getting money or support for something that produces a result of nothing because the value of nothing, well, typically is nothing. So that's, that's hard. And unless you know, you know, it's a difficult thing to convey to somebody. Yes, I want a result of nothing. Nothing happened because we did what we were supposed to do. And also, the reality of protection is 99% of the time, nothing happens. So it's just an insurance policy for the 1%. That might so, have, yeah. Awesome. Well, it was a great pleasure to have this conversation. It's an honor. You. Thank you. Uh, definitely going to look you up, and I want to learn more. Um, and um, you know, before we close this off, uh, the... This is such a, a attractive, luring lifestyle for people, um, and I, I meet a lot of people that are young, that are motivated, they want to do something with their lives, and they look around like Ed, like, what's your recommendation? And usually, I tell them like, Dude, go to school, do something else. You know, um, I I do have uh, mixed feelings about my experiences and uh, some of the aspects of what I had to do and what it cost me. Looking back on all this, was it worth it? To be determined. Good. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Right.